0: How y'all doing this morning? How y'all doing this morning? I haven't been doing that well this morning. Oh! It's getting old. <laughs> Isn't that sad? Oh! All oh, the days of my youth. I don't want to be, uh... I, I, this is kind of awkward. I feel like some kind of a TV evangelist where, you know... But, but I, I wanted to tell those people who didn't get a book last week, or who tried to, but didn't get one, that there's some more up there. I don't know if there'll be enough, but... but uh, I'm excited about this because these are the letters, this this book that my dad and I wrote. Um, It's so cute, too. We're doing a radio interview. My dad is doing a radio interview with me. And we got called to do this, and he's so scared. I've never seen my dad so scared in my life. My only coaching to him is, you know, Dad, please, don't swear. This is live radio. (laughs) And we're both saying, you know, what is my dad doing on Christian talk radio uh, I just hope no one in the, in the call-in station gets them ticked off. Anyways, these are the letters that led to this conversion. And uh, uh, it's a good evangelism tool. People are, are getting it and giving it to uh, loved ones who maybe are in, in a big state of doubt or not believers at all. So if you want that, they'll be up there. Enough of that. Now I have some dirt from Jerusalem. And this especially... I'm no, only kidding. <laughs> have you seen the stuff they sell on... on a? On TV, it's incredible. Holy land dirt, anointed and prayed for. Piece of my tie. One of these guys was selling a piece of his tie that was anointed during a certain... Never mind. Acts chapter 2, where we've been, where we're staying. Acts chapter 2, we're talking about the um, uh, birth of the church and uh, looking at the day of Pentecost and after... Words and seeing, drawing out from there, extracting from there principles by which the church uh, should be established. And um, we'll start with Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves, these new Christians, 3,000 of them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they devoted themselves, submitted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, eating together, and to prayer everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles, and all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the way that you uh, blessed me the first service when my mind was so scattered and I was so frazzled and uh, just pulled in a lot of different directions, Lord. You really settled my heart and blessed me, and I thank you for that. And I pray, God, that that would carry over here, Lord. Give me focus, give me insight as I deliver this word. I pray, God, that your spirit would be here making this fertile ground for us to receive what you have for us, Lord. As we talk about this very important topic, Lord, I pray, God, that you'd open up our minds so that we wouldn't be bound by the chains of tradition if those traditions aren't rooted in Scripture. Lord, some of this maybe will uh, uh, be a challenge for us to move outside of some of our comfort zones, but Lord, the only way we ever grow in you is by being moved out of our comfort zones. Lord, that's your job to do, not mine. I'm not going to try to do it with words. That becomes manipulation. So I ask, Lord, that your spirit would be here present with your word and infusing it with your power and grace to transform us into the kind of people, worshiping people, that you want us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. We've been uh, studying Acts chapter 2 as uh, uh, the foundation for the church. And we've seen that if you want to have a church that has the... They didn't have microphones in the book of Acts, and they got along a lot better. If you want a church that has the kind of power and dynamism and effectiveness and experiences the reality of God, in a way that the church in the book of Acts did, you have to base your thinking about what a church is on the book of Acts. And thus far, we've been examining several of these features. The the, uh, people in the book of Acts, the the, the early church, was uh, um, devoted, first of all, to following the Spirit. They didn't want to do their own thing and do their own agenda and impose their own wills. They wanted to go where the Spirit led, even if that meant going in a radically different direction. They were devoted to, submitted to, the power of the Holy Spirit. They were submitted to um, uh, ministering to one another. They didn't localize their, their church in a, on a Sunday morning experience, but rather their church was one that was without, all, without, without walls. They were devoted to ministry to one another. And then they were devoted to ministering to the world, to evangelism. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings, to the word of God. And we've seen that if a church is going to have the power and dynamism and presence of God, the church in the book of Acts had, it has to be a church that's devoted to the word of God, all the word of God, and nothing but the word of God. And then we saw last week that the early church was one that was devoted to prayer. One that's covered everything that they did with prayer. And so also we if we're going to be an apostolic kind of church, have got to be a church that's committed to individual and corporate prayer. Because God has just set things up such that prayer accomplishes much for the kingdom of God, and without that, nothing for the kingdom of God happens. This morning I want to talk about a fifth element to this early church, and that is worship. It characterized the early church. They were characterized as people who praise God. What I want to do is talk about four things that worship is. I just want to give a teaching about what worship is, and then conclude by talking about four things that worship does. Worship, in its, in its essence, is simply ascribing worth to God. That's what the word worship means. You're giving worth to God, recognizing worth towards God, ascribing worth towards God. Worship is the act whereby we simply say out loud or sing out loud who God is. Who God is. We just recognize God for being God. It means that in worship, God is our only audience. Worship isn't about singing to one another. It's not about entertaining one another. It's not about putting on a good performance. Thank God for that. Uh, making sure that you don't skip up and, and you know, don't and at five different places. That's not what worship's about. In worship, God is our audience. Worship becomes worship only to the degree that God is our single and solitary audience. Only to the degree that other people and other things are out of our attention, and God is the focus of our attention, does worship really become worship? Does singing really become worship? Does speaking really become worship? God is the audience. The analogy that I like to use about what worship is, is that of... uh, I just say that, ro- that, that worship is romancing God. Worship is romancing God. You know, in, in a, with, a, with a married couple, they need to have time where they talk about groceries and talk about kids and talk about problems and all the stuff that married couples spend most of their time talking about. It's information conveying. But they also need a time where they stop conveying information and just be together. Right? Can some married people say amen? You need to have time where we you're just together, where you're just there for one another, and there's no utilitarian agenda. There's no purpose over and above the fact that you want to be together, and you say true things to one another. You just speak truth to one another. You just build relationship. Honey, I love you. You're beautiful. Uh, you know, you're awesome. <laughs> Whatever you know, you say. In those mushy moments, you just. And the purpose isn't to convey information. The purpose is just romance, to be together, to be and to embrace one another, to just enjoy one another. That's why he got married in the first place. A lot of people get kind of queasy when we talk about having that kind of relationship with God. Because God is the the supreme being, the the holy other, the transcendent one who dwelleth on ethereal planes, And it just doesn't seem like the omnipotent being would, would enter into that kind of intimate relationship with us. And a large part of the church today is just too, way too cerebral, too intellectually orientated. This is why we're, we're interested in, in Bible studies, doing a lot of Bible studies, studying a lot of theology and, and you know things of that sort. We're comfortable with that because that's non-threatening. That can keep God at bay. And you need to have that. I'm not against that. Heck, I'm a, a, a professor of theology. I'd be unemployed if people didn't do that. So keep on doing that and send your kids to Bethel. <laughs> Someone send this tape to George Brusharber. I want to raise. (laughs) I want to kick back on this. But information and cerebral content without passion, without emotion, without a time where there's some kind of life-transforming experience is dead. There needs to be a time in, in human relationships and a time for us as a church where we just set aside time to look at God, to look into his face, to dwell together. And that's what worship is. Just mirroring back to God who he is and saying true things about God. I stand, I stand in awe of you. When I, you know, telling God something he didn't, you know, no. Oh, really? You're standing? Oh, I thought you were sitting. No, you're just expressing something. When I look into your holiness and I gaze into your loveliness, then all things that surround me become shadows in the light of you. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. And when your eyes are on this child... Your grace abounds to me. God wants that kind of intimate relationship with us. I'm not the one who came up with this romancing analogy. The Bible did. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says that, um, Paul, Paul says that, that as, as a husband loves his wife and the wife loves the husband, so also does Christ love the church. And, 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 and the church is to love Christ. And in the same way that a husband and wife are one flesh, Paul uses that analogy, one flesh, so, also, the Lord wants that kind of relationship with us one of unconditional, uncompromised, passionate intimacy. Read the Song of Solomon sometime. God, without blushing, says some incredible things about what he thinks about the church. It's, 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 the Song of Solomon is one big romantic, even sometimes erotic allegory for what God thinks about the church and what he wants to inspire the church to think about him. So, he looks into the eyes of his beloved. It says, your eyes are altogether lovely. You ravish my heart, my dear. You are altogether beautiful. And then the, the bride responds by, by, by saying similar things. You are awesome. You are, you are beyond a comprehension. There is none like you. I'm overwhelmed by your beauty. And that is an end in and of itself. And that's what worship is. We just say true things about, about who God is. We just dwell with God. We just dwell with God. Sometimes people say things like this. I hear this a lot by my colleagues at Bethel. Um, Well, you know, about the Bethel Chapel. Why do we have to sing these choruses? You know, these, uh, Oh, Lord, you're beautiful, and Oh, how he loves you and me. These trivial, trite, uh, you know, untheological choruses. Oh, the old hymns, they've got such meat. They've got such power. They've got such doctrine. They teach people. These trivial things, Jesus, I love you stuff, just doesn't... And then we sing them 14 times. I got the point after the first time. But see, if you think you got the point after the first time, you didn't get the point because the point of the course wasn't to make a point. Got the point? Yeah. When the, you need, we need to teach doctrine, and, and, and we need to study Scripture. We need all those things. And it's good to sing songs, good, powerful hymns that talk that teach us about who God is, and they can be worship. But the worship only insofar as our... Is our focus isn 't on information, but our focus is on God, God is the audience, and we 're just saying true things about God. and saying, "I love you," whether you do it once or five times or fifty times, can never be trite. How could that be trite? I love you. But when I say that to Shelley, when we 're just being together and loving one another, I, you know i 'm not telling her information. You are beautiful. Oh well yes yeah, she 's taking notes. oh, that 's easy. Which, which parts we're speaking for? Right? This isn't a biology class. You know, a, the, the point there isn't conveying information. It's just expressing. And you can express it over and over again. Like that's why we, we sometimes take 20, 25 minutes in order to, to, to worship God because it takes a while to get into that mindset. I, I, it's, it's hard when you just sing a, cor- you know, sing a hymn or a chorus at the beginning and sing it in the middle and sing one at the end. You know, it, it's just harder to get into it. Sometimes it takes time just to get into that mindset. But, but somehow singing over and over again reinforces the attitude that is there. Worship is romancing God. God desires that kind of relationship with us, and that's what it's, it, it's about. A time to look upon God, taste God, enjoy God as He enjoys us. A time just to be together. The second thing that worship is, and this follows directly from it, is that worship involves your whole self. Worship involves your whole self. Jesus says in Matthew 23, Love the Lord thy God with all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your heart. And all of your body. David says, prays in Psalms, he says, I will bless the Lord, O my soul, with all that is within me. When two people are, are just enjoying one another romantically, they better be there for each other. They're not enjoying each other romantically. If they're not there for each other, what would you think about a husband if, who's, you know... This is their special time together. And he's got his arm around his wife and saying wonderful things, but he's reading the paper as he's doing it. Oh, honey, yes, you're you're beautiful. Beyond comprehension, really, you are. I I want you to know that. (laughs) End of marriage. (laughs) (laughs) It becomes relationship, it becomes intimate, it becomes dynamic, and it becomes passionate when the people are really there for one another. When our mind is focused, when, when the person is there behind the eyes and their whole being is, is, is pulled together and there for the other person, that's what is passionate romance relationship. And so it is in worship. Worship is not simply singing a song. A song in and of itself is not worship. I don't care how beautiful it is, how wonderful it is, how, how perfect the people play it. It is not in and of itself worship. Worship isn't singing a song for the sake of singing a song. It's not tradition for the sake of tradition. Worship becomes worship when and only when our heart is, is, is fused into what we're singing about. It becomes worship only when, our, only when our focus is on God. It becomes worship only when God is our audience. Worship becomes worship. Singing becomes worship. And all that we might do as a part of worship, it only becomes worship to the degree that we are abandoned to God, sold out to God, that our mind are, is off of our problems, off of the struggles that we had, off of the people that are around us, and it's focused on God. That's what makes worship, worship. And the quality of the song is, is, is uh, not that important. It helps if it's not distracting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but beyond that, the music is just a vehicle to, 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 to worship God. Worship is romancing God, and it involves our whole self. And that leads to a third point. Worship is a commitment that we make. Involving your whole self does not come natural. It doesn't come, it, it, it doesn't come easy. The same way that, for most marriages anyways, making time to be together and forcing yourself not to worry about the finances and not to worry about the kids and not to worry about the homework and not to worry about the car, that, that, that's hard to do. And if you don't make a resolve to do it, you're probably never going to do it. It takes commitment. And when you do it, you're really saying, Honey, you're more important than the car. You're more important, well, not than the kids, but more important than the problem of the kids. You deserve this attention. And so also us, when we come together, worship is a decision that we have to make. It's it's a resolve. I'm going to worship God. And that itself, that resolve is itself an act of worship. Because what you're saying is, God, you deserve all my attention now, you are more worthy of my attention right now than my problems. You're bigger than my problems. You're more important than my problems. Though right now I'm worried about my marriage, though right now I'm worried about my kids, though right now I don't know how, where I'm going to find a job, though right now my health is failing, though right now I've had a terrible, terrible morning, though right now I'm in a really raunchy mood, though right now I don't even feel like being in church, and I don't feel spiritual. That's exactly how I felt when I came here this morning, even though... It is how I felt when I came here this morning. Nevertheless, because it is right to do, because it is fitting, because you are worthy, I'm going to worship you. And that itself is saying something. You are worth it. Worship is a a resolve. It's a commitment that we make. And it means that we just take all the problems that we might have, all the things that could potentially distract us, and we put them on the back burner. The nice thing about problems is that when you walk out of church, they're always there waiting for you, so you have plenty of time to pick them up. But when you come to worship God, it's a matter of just saying. And it's important to note this. Many times I have felt, like this morning was a classic example, I, I couldn't have felt less in the mood of worship. I woke up an hour late. I, 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 I got dressed, brushed my teeth, didn't have time for a shower, and, 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 uh, and I made it to church here in 30 minutes. 5 or 7, I was here at 7.35 and my brain was scattered. I was in a bad mood. My, my car doors were frozen. I'm not going to tell you all the problems, but it's amazing how many problems you can have in a half-hour period of time. And I was just in a real raunchy mood. But because God is worthy, because God is worthy, I didn't feel like it, didn't feel spiritual. I think feeling spiritual is overrated anyways. But because it's the right thing to do, you, you commit yourself, it's It's true. What often happens is what begins as work. It is effort. It is labor sometimes. It's, a, it's, it's what the Bible calls a sacrifice of praise. You do it as a sacrifice. It starts as an obligation. But you know what? Many times at least, as you're into it for two or three songs, as your mind begins to get focused, as you begin to get centered, boy, there's a blessing that, that comes to you. This morning I can hardly play the drums. I was getting so moved in, in, in the first service from the worship. But it comes, first comes the decision. The blessing comes afterwards. Make a decision to worship God if for no other reason than that he deserves your attention. <laughs> Amen. He's worthy. The fourth thing is that worship can occur in a wide variety of places and worship can occur in a wide variety of forms. First of all, in a wide variety of places. Worship doesn't have to occur just here on Sunday morning. In fact, it really shouldn't occur just here on Sunday morning. We need vibrant worship here on Sunday morning, but take it with you to your home, and take it with you in the car, and take it with you to the workplace. David wrote about a fourth of his psalms as congregational hymns to be sung, okay? But he wrote about half of his psalms as personal prayers or praises to God, personal prayers. And and we we read in these psalms David saying things like this, when I go to bed at night, Lord, your praise is on my lips, and when I arise in the morning, I'm going to praise you. Throughout the day, I'm going to praise you. You shall always be before me. Don't limit praise and worship to what goes on right here. You find that as, as you praise God at home, man, when you come to church, you get a bunch of people who have been praising God throughout the week, and pff, worship just eru- erupts. And, and as worship erupts in the congregation, we take that back home. It's a cyclical, kind of mutually reinforcing thing. But it's not limited, here, limited to here. It also can occur in a wide variety of forms, and it's important for us to know that. Sometimes David plays uh, the psalms on the harp. Soothing, quiet, meditative, introspective music. That is praise. That can be worship. Because what makes a song worship isn't how fast or slow it is. It's whether the heart's into it or not. Where your focus is. Where your mind is. What your mindset is. You can worship God in silence. Perfect silence can be an act of worship. You get past the awkwardness of it and just focus on God and don't care about anything else. And boy, it can be a profound time of worship. The Bible often speaks about worship in that kind of meditative, introspective way. It can be sweet and serene. The Bible also talks about worship in a very extroverted way. Getting getting rowdy. The Bible a number of times says things like, you know, praise him with the clashing cymbals, praise him with the drums, praise him with the tambourine. Thirty times or more it says, um, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Sing unto God a new song with a loud voice. Blow the trumpets in Zion. Praise them with a the sounding horn. Praise them with a the resounding cymbal. Praise them with the dancing feet. It's all over the place in Psalms. Celebrational kind of worship, and we need both. We need both. Sometimes we think that, well, no, worship has to be this kind of music or worship has to be that kind of music. But in Scripture, it's an all-encompassing thing. And if we want to be a scriptural church, our worship has to be an all-encompassing kind of thing. We need to have some fast songs, rowdy songs, celebrational songs. We need to have some quiet songs, some ballads, some sweet songs. We need it sometimes loud, and we need it sometimes fast, and we need it sometimes soft, and we need it sometimes slow. Sometimes we can praise God with a good old rock funky beat. That's my personal favorite. (laughs) Yeah. but sometimes we need to praise God with a slow ballad we could even praise God even praise God with opera polka why not polka (laughs) Daryl you play an accordion I I, I used to be in a church where he played an accordion the kind of music doesn't matter the style of music doesn't matter so long as the music is seen not as an end in and of itself but music is the vehicle it's the means by which we focus on God and say true things about God and God is the only audience and nothing else that's the crucial element. We need both kinds of worship. It, it, it involves a lot of different kinds of forms. One form of worship that I want to talk about, because people have asked a lot of questions about it, is uh, what's this stuff about raising hands? Uh, why do people raise their hands to the Lord? That's one form of worship, and it's found throughout the Bible. In fact, it's one of the most common physical expressions of the Bible. What you do with your body reinforces what goes on in your spirit. Somewhere along the line, we kind of bifurcated the spirit and the body, but the two are very much intertwined. And so the Bible sometimes talks about how to physically worship God. It talks about dancing. Eleven times it talks about dancing. It's okay to do that. Don't get, you know, do it decently and in order. We don't, you know, it's one thing to dance in, in, your, in your pew here. That's great. At home, you can run all, all you want. But here, the, the, the principle is don't be distracting. You know, dancing in your own little pew is great. If you run around screaming, people might... Now you become the focus instead of God. And that shouldn't happen. But that, that's one form of worship. And it's and, and a physical expression. Clapping your hands is a physical expression. Singing is a physical expression. And raising your hands to God is a physical expression. And it can mean a lot of different things. In Psalm 63, David says, I will lift up my hands unto your name. And in the context of that psalm, he's really expressing his, his uh, dependency on God. Lord, I need you. I need you. I cry unto you, he says, with my hands lifted up. Sometimes it denotes an openness to God. No, the dependency is in Psalm 28. Openness to God is in Psalm 64, where he says, I lift up my hands in your name. I'm open to whatever you have, God. And I find, you know, whenever there's anything in the Bible, it's there for a reason. And I find that it helps me experience an openness towards God as I open my hands towards God. It's like whatever you want. It's like giving God a hug. You have all of me. And it sometimes means that in the Bible. Sometimes it's used as a confession. Ezra says, I fell on my knees with my hands outstretched towards heaven. And then he pleads for Israel and confesses the sins of Israel. It can, it can denote confession. Sometimes it, it denotes petition. Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter 2, he, he tells Israel, Lift up your hands unto the Lord for the sake of your starving children. Saying, Asking God to to end the famine that that was in the land. Sometimes it's just done to to, to please God. Psalms 141. David says to the Lord, May my lifted hands be unto you as an evening sacrifice. Take delight in this, O God. God delights in it. That's one reason to do it. And sometimes it's just done as an act of obedience. Because Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, I will that all people in all places lift up consecrated hands unto the Lord. It's one way of expressing worship to God. Singing isn't the only way. Clapping hands isn't the only way. Dancing isn't the only way. Being quiet isn't the only way. Being serene and introspective isn't the only way. And lifting hands isn't the only way. But it is one way, and we need all ways. Sometimes people are a little awkward with that. Because it's not, it's not what you're used to. And that's okay. I remember the first time I was in a church where this was happening, and I was a new Christian, and uh, I didn't understand what it was about, but I, I felt like, if they're doing it, and I'm a believer. Maybe I should try it, but it's kind of weird, you know. And I'm so bashful, anyways. So I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. you just embarrassed me. But you know, so I kind of would, you know, you know, like this. I, you know, so when I was 17, I was a cool dude, you know, cool. And and this this, this didn't seem very cool. But I got really got blessed by doing it. Starts so kind of like you know, your little finger, and they kind of work your way up. And I, you know, I understand. And even though not a soul in the place, because God's their audience, they're tuned into that. They don't care what you're doing. I mean, they're, they're not supposed to be looking around anyways. But, you know, if it's your first time, you, you swear everyone in the place is looking at you. And you know, like, I was like, you know, I know how that feels. So maybe try it at home, you know, in your own, in your own worship time. Try it at home. Uh, get comfortable with it. But you know what? No one really cares. No one's looking. It doesn't make a bit of difference. Try it. You get used to it. And you find that there's a blessing in it. Anything you do with your body that's biblical, there's a blessing to to, to be found in it. I encourage you to try it. But it is not. It is not a requirement. It is not a criteria. You're not more spiritual if you do. You're not less spiritual if you don't. Raising your hands... Like stamping your feet, like singing a song, like clapping your hands, it can mean absolutely nothing. What makes it worship is when your heart is behind it, your focus is involved in it, and it's expressing something that's in your heart. It's a way of ascribing worth to God. That's what makes it worship, and there's a real blessing in it. But it's not like a spiritual requirement or something that, you know, you go up on the scale if you do, you go down the scale if you don't. What worship does worship is an end in and of itself because God delights in it. It's the right thing to do. It's in our heart to do it. And it's fulfilling to do. But there's also some incredible, and I mean incredible, benefits that come from worshiping God. God delights in it. So then the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. He takes residency in the praises of his people. When we open our heart up to God, when we become vacuums, when when we just are are without, without reserve, opened up to God, God floods in. When we're poured out to him, he's poured out to us, and his spirit begins to envelop this place. The reality of God begins to settle on us, and that is what transforms us more than anything else information, Bible studies, doctrine, seminary, degree, seminary education, that's all good, wonderful, hallelujah, thank God for it. But in and of itself, it does not transform you. You know in your own life that you've got a lot of information, but that itself doesn't help you conquer sin. It doesn't change your attitude. It doesn't change your lifestyle. There needs to be something. Reality is what changes you. And when we worship and the presence of God comes down upon us, whether it's at home or whether it's here in a congregation, that's when we begin to experience the reality of what we know in our head. And nowhere do you experience transformation. The elevator going from the head to the heart more than in worship. When you're focused, everything else is aside. One thing matters, one thing alone, and that is Jesus. you're focused on him. Then, then there's a transformation there. You begin to understand in your heart what the love of God is, what the grace of God is, what the mercy of God is, what the power of God is, because the reality is around you. And that's when you begin to get moved. That's when you really are romancing God. You also find that that's what lifts you up as you sense the reality of God. You know what? If you put your problems on the back burner, leave them at the door when you come in, worship God because he's worthy, that's the best thing you could possibly do to handle your problems because you temporarily rise above them. You, you attain, as it were, as God embraces you, you're sitting, sitting with Christ in heavenly places and you have a different perspective on things. When I gaze into your loveliness, then all things that surround become shadow in the light of you. And, and all of a sudden, you begin to see it in perspective. You get insight about it. They, they're not so overwhelming. They're not so, so terrible. Because life is Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary. And you begin to experience that in worship. Oh, there's a, a healing occurs in worship. Uh, passion for the Christian life begins to occur in worship. The final thing it does is it is the best, the best, the best witness to non-believers that we could possibly have. When someone comes in here, they may not understand. They won't understand what's going on. If they've never been to church and you know, don't know that stuff, that's fine. But one thing, if their heart is open to it at all, if they have any degree of spiritual sight, if they're salvageable, they're going to sense the reality of God here. The Shekinah glory that filled the Old Testament comes down upon us in just the same way, and that is a magnet on people's life. There's life here. What they've always longed for, they sense, is found in this place. And far more than any words I could ever have, any sermon I could preach, any track I could write, any book I could ever have, far more effective than any of that is simply the reality of what we're talking about here. Here's what we're talking about, here's the reality of it, and they sense it. As I said, this last two, weeks, two weeks ago, we had a person who entered the, the service as an atheist, left as a believer, and one of the main reasons was because he saw that it was real. This isn't all talk, it's not just all thinking, it's not just all doctrine, it's about something real. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, this is that. This is that which was prophesied. He had something to talk about because there's a reality there. That's why I love preaching after there's been like real great worship. It's like, it's just, ah, the groundwork's been laid. This is that, Peter says, which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. You know what I'm talking about? There's something real, there's something tangible, something experiential going on there. And now I'm going to talk to you about it. But without that, you just got to talk. That draws non believers. As the musicians come, I'm going to encourage you to enter into worship, to take every possible issue, only because it's the right thing to do. How you feel doesn't matter. What moods you're in, how spiritual you are, doesn't matter. How righteous you are or aren't, the devil will try to condemn you out of worship. Never let it happen. The one thing that will transform you out of where you're at is Worship. Don't wait till you get holy to begin praising God. You'll never get around to praising God. Praise God in the midst of your sin struggles. And that's what gives you fuel to get out of that. But I'm going to encourage you to put everything aside and focus on the Lord. And let's just enter into worship, abandon ourselves, lose ourselves in worship, and ask God's presence to come down upon here. If you're new here, you don't have to understand all this. If you're a believer, I encourage you just to worship God your own way. If you're here and you're not a believer, I encourage you just to be open. And see what's going on and see if in fact it's the reality of God, you don't sense the presence of God here. I promise you you will. Let's stand and abandon all and sell out. the of God.